The Web Delics podcast exists to educate, illuminate, and inform. It does not provide medical advice or recommendations as to any course of treatment, mental health or otherwise. You should always consult with a physician or other licensed healthcare professional, mental health or otherwise, before pursuing any personal growth program or course of treatment. The future of mental health treatment and peak performance enhancement is here. Welcome to the WebDelix podcast, brought to you by WebDelix, your trusted resource for plant medicine information on the web. By sharing real stories, expert interviews, and honest conversations, we're here to go beyond the myths and get to the truth. Here's your host, Scott Mason. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the WebDelics Podcast, where we're on a journey to find out the truth about psychedelics and plant medicines, to get rid of the myths, to change the narrative. I'm your host, Scott Mason, and with us today is our very special guest, Colette Condorcita Schmidt. Colette, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hey, Scott. It's so great to be here on the WebDelix podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I'll share with you that uh, I have a background in regenerative agriculture and design. I've spent uh, most of my adult life working in the developing world, as well as supporting my hometown in Philly. I'm, I'm born and raised in Philadelphia. I'm the founder and board chair of a 501c4 working to decriminalize entheogenic plants and fungi in Philadelphia called Decriminalize Nature Philadelphia. I'm a coach and a psychedelic facilitator. I work with uh, an organization called Tandava Retreats that work with 5-MeO-DMT. And I'm a longtime student of Yahe, which is the form of ayahuasca found in Colombia, as well as ayahuasca. And I've been a student of that, that plant medicine and technology for, for really most of my adult life at this point. And I'm really just passionate about this intersection of shamanism and science that is currently happening and really passionate about how this this is intersecting at this point. Thank you. First of all, I've got to say, hearing that bio, I, I'm a little bit intimidated <laughs> and definitely impressed. And one of the things we really strive to bring here are people who are credible experts in the field. So thank you for sharing all of that collective wisdom um, and knowledge into the room. Uh, it's just, it's really amazing. The focus of the episode today is what exactly is shamanism? And for those of you who are going on the journey of this podcast with me, you, like me, as somewhat of a newbie in this space, have heard a lot of terms that you may or may not be familiar with or may have uh, associations for you that are uncomfortable or disconcerting. And some of these associations might even be a little bit scary. And so shamanism and the word shaman are terms that fall into that category. I won't lie. I grew up, as everyone who listens to this podcast or watches it knows, in the backwoods of Kansas, I watched Hollywood movies. I've learned since I've grown up that they don't always tell the truth exactly like it is. <laughs> and in fact, some Hollywood movies are known to resort to stereotypes. Shocking. Right. But I didn't understand that. And so when I heard words like shamanism, or when I think of a shaman, I think of old movies where some mysterious person would come out of the mist and they might be wearing a mask and they might be having all sorts of weird dances that are vaguely scary and drums in the background that are, are 
mystical and odd and alien to the spirituality that I grew up with and alien to the culture that I grew up in. So one of the things that I just want to get clear about, and again, just based on this Hollywood knowledge of what a shaman is, is whether shamans really are just priests. Because that's a term I understand, mm. or ministers, or religious officials, but just for other indigenous society-based religions. And if so, is that all there is to it? And if they're not really the same, how are they different? What are your thoughts on that? Mm. Yeah, I think there's there's a lot to unpack there. I think fundamentally, when we're talking about the word shamanism, even this word, I think, and again, we, we live in an incredibly interconnected world at this point. And just for common language and finding common terminology to, to express ideas or concepts, shaman in and of itself is a word like this. You know, the word shaman comes from a, a culture that was uh, native to, is native to Siberia. And the word saman, which um, refers to, you know, their spiritual leaders. And, you know, if we want to use the word religion, uh, which is really from my perspective and, and from, I, I would say, a lot of anthropology perspectives is, is when we're thinking about more monotheistic religions. Uh, we're thinking about Christianity, we're thinking about Islam, mm -hmm. uh, Judaism, etc. And so the sort of these dominant world religions that are codified through certain spiritual texts, mm -hmm. there are appointed leaders that are basically the individuals that have been chosen to interface with these codified texts that have been, you know, written who knows how long ago by by really fundamentally who, and that the individual who is a priest in the context of, uh, let's say, in, in a Christian, a more sort of Christian-oriented faith, is that is their role to be this intermediary person, right? And so through customs, through practices, also through uh, really even more so, I would say, symbolic sacraments, for example, when you go to church, you're drinking the cup of Christ, um, which is wine. Etc. That there's these symbolic sacraments that are happening that are connecting individuals through God, but through like an interface of practice. Shamanism as a concept is incredibly diverse. For me, really, most of my experience has been with American curanderismo, and the word curanderismo is is really you know is a Spanish word that is is really the the sort of the act of healing that's sort of encompassed in that word, right? Like an individual who is a curandero or a traditional healer. So when we're kind of diluting this down, each particular culture that we could put into that category of shamanism and or perhaps animistic cultures, and they oftentimes overlap, uh, and it can get quite detailed in how you're, you know, parsing all of these things out, let's say, each culture has their own practices, their own really study of nature from my perspective. However, I think that when we're talking about shamanism as, as a concept and as a practice, the way that this is fundamentally different than Christianity is that in shamanic practices and traditions, that there is uh, an understanding and awareness. I don't like to use the word energy. Uh, in a lot of different shamanic cultures, in especially in the ayahuasca basin, they don't necessarily think about spirits in, let's say, in a boa or in a, you know, or in a jaguar. They think that it's this combination of that there is an actual entity in there. There is a personality in there. In the same way that we are human beings and you and I have no, you know, know each other, et cetera. We have a relationship that there are relationships in nature that we can build connections with. And that an individual who is in their culture, who is in that relationship with nature, that is, has the responsibility of interfacing and understanding nature in these varied ways. And from my perspective, a multi-dimensional way, one very practical of like, 
having an actual relationship, just as we do with human beings, right. but that there's also sort of these interdimensional ways that we can interface with these beings. And so when we're looking at plant technologies, for example, like ayahuasca, this is a way that we can use this technology to basically interface with these different beings that are in nature that we're building relationships with. Just like how you might have someone on, you know, I don't know, like hypothesizing, like, let's say you have a neighbor that like, oh, I don't really like that neighbor over there. And we don't have a good relationship. And maybe I stay away from them. Which is true, by the way. But that's another conversation. Right. (laughs) (laughs) We all got that neighbor, right? (laughs) So I mean, and 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 then, you know, so it's, it's like building these relationships. And then the relationships are on an individual level. And then they're on a cultural level that are starting to get understood and studied together. So, you know, a shaman is is someone or a curandero in this instance might be someone that has this ability to interface in these realms and is also simultaneously the individual that's and again I'm I'm very much generalizing here. So, you know, all y'all who are listening that, that this is of course very particular depending on context, et cetera, and culture. But that the individual might also be the individual that is responsible for doing different types of healing work. Uh, and there's also this aspect to then many different shamanic cultures that there is an energetic component to different physical or cognitive, what we could call diseases. So then this is a whole other perspective of how the framework is different, whereas a priest might not necessarily be in that type of role. So that's just a little bit to share with you. Really, really interesting. And I actually found some of that revelatory. So thank you. It's going to lead into the question I have after this question. I do want to sidetrack a little bit. An interesting terminological choice that you made was describing the plant medicine or the psychedelics, as, you know, using the term in common language, as technologies. Yes. What does that word choice represent? Why just say it that way? Yeah, it's something that I'm starting to share a bit more around what's interesting about this, again, this integration between the global north and the global south with looking at entheogenic uh, psychedelic plants and fungi in nature. Entheogen means that of God within. So, you know, my organization that I shared that's working to decriminalize these tools, we have, there's different classifications of, of entheogens in nature, ayahuasca, psilocybin-based fungi, et cetera. These are in that entheogenic category, right? However, when the global north is now looking at these tools, what's happened is that because, yes, for sure, individuals who take ayahuasca, oftentimes with right set and setting, when they're using it for the purpose of uh, alleviating depression, there's tremendous results behind that. Right. And so it is a medicine. However, it is also a a sacrament. It is also a tool to study nature. It is also a tool to, you know, for many, many ayahuasca cultures. And again, there's so many of them and the actual investigation. One of the individuals that I work with, um, Don Alberto Garlecki, who's based in Mexico, talking to him about his cultural practices growing up in an ayahuasca uh, Quechua culture have never been documented. And he told me that there's been times where he's speaking to anth- spoken to anthropologists and they're like, well, what you're telling me about what you did, it doesn't make, you know, that doesn't make sense. Like I'm telling you, I grew up in that culture. Like, what do you mean? Ayahuasca is a medicine. It's a medicine. You take it and it's going to heal something. And ayahuasca as a tool, I, I think about it as a technology because it works much more mysteriously than that. And I think there's also the concept too from the global north of you take this thing and it's going to heal you on the other side. And that can be really complicated when we're talking about these, the, I, and I really prefer to call them technologies at this point. Of course, I use the word language, the language around medicine. Uh, they are, but they work in these multidimensional ways that are not always on a linear timeline. 
that capitalism wants medicines to work on. So for individuals that are interested or curious in these technologies or these medicines, how you know, however you spiritual sacraments, there's lots of different ways to frame it. And also even the word spiritual. I was just listening to Jeremy Narby speak about this, who is pretty much the top one of the top leading anthropologists in the world who has done extensive research, um, has amazing books about this concept of calling ayahuasca a spiritual tool. And he's got complications with that. So it's interesting to think about this. And I think that when we're thinking about this integration of the global north and how we're shifting the awareness of these tools, it's important to really, as much as possible, considering um, indigenous context of these things. And it's not always easy. Yeah, but it's actually really interesting. And what you're beginning to tap into is some of the things that have come up in other episodes that have been released already. For instance, we had an episode with a gentleman named Owen Fitzpatrick who talked about the relationship of psychedelics to religious belief, what drives religious belief. This ties directly into some of that conversation. With another guest, Rom Rector, we talked about psychedelics and its implications for the global economy. Because if this renaissance happens and it really moves forward in all of the ways that are possible and some of the ways that he discussed during that episode, well, the tendrils of how that could impact economics and how the global north defines itself and how its own economy is driven could conceivably radically shift while we're having a spiritual revolution at the same time. And so this is all really, really fascinating stuff. And it goes as to a limitation with regards to our terminology that I would never have been aware of, but for the fact that you made that very conscious language choice. So I I really have to thank you for that. I'm going to have to ponder that. And we may have to have further discussion about that as this podcast goes on, frankly. I think it's something real quick, Scott. Yeah, I mean, it's, bueno, bueno, I think that I've also too, you know, I'm I'm not traditionally from any uh, indigenous culture in the Americas. I'm I'm a student and really try to be an advocate for the cultures that I know and work with and that I'm a student of. For me, it's it's kind of continuously unpacking how my own projections and my own frameworks are um, interfacing with the cultures. And this is, of course, part of just human civilization. Like we hang out with each other, we get to know each other, we move around, we intermarry, and then culture shifts and moves. And right now what's happening, though, in a, in a really radical way is suddenly, you know, especially with the context of ayahuasca, there's really kind of limiting sets of understanding how truly complex the systems are and how ayahuasca is utilized, even the concept of, oh, it's just two plants. There's so many cultures that add different plants. Have it, I mean, there's over a hundred different varieties that are known of Banisteriopsis capi vine alone. Each of them have their own, you know, and if you are getting to talk with the cultures and they want to share, you know, really like it's, uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, they, they do want to share and really want to, ha- these are, these are, oral language, oral histories, oral cultural, oral-based cultures, and want to share. So it's, there's so much nuance in how this works and, and how I think that, and both of those languages are really important of having this sort of Western science-based language and having as much as possible to listen to traditional people who are using these tools and hearing from their perspective and how they're using them in their cultural context. Fascinating. Thank you very, very much for that add-on. Now, Going back a little bit to what we were talking about earlier, but somewhat tying into everything that we were just talking about as I think about it a little bit more deeply. I'm understanding that the shamanistic space is more complex 
more multidimensional and more diverse than my stereotypical Hollywood-driven understanding of what a shaman um, was would have led me to think otherwise. But let's keep it real. One other thing I'm learning as I dive into this space is that there are a lot of people who claim that they're shamans. Like, you know, they've been on a couple of psychedelic journeys. Ayahuasca comes to mind, might be other plants, and all of a sudden they're a shaman. And I find, in light of what you just said, that to be a little bit challenging because it creates, in my mind, confusion, again, about what a shaman is. But then also, I can't help but, in light of that confusion, note that you described yourself as a psychedelic facilitator, not a shaman. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about how you respond hearing all that. And again, there's so much to unpack here, but uh, just try to keep it short. I think it's really important that uh, an individual like me that is um, not from a traditional shamanic culture or lineage, that as much as possible, we're understanding the respect and also really the tremendous sacrifice that virtually every animistic shamanic culture on the planet has gone through. You know, indigenous people uh, everywhere tend to be the poorest and most disenfranchised communities on the planet. And they are also 80% uh, responsible for the last remaining wilderness and natural lands. And right now we have this tremendous explosion of individuals and um, consumerism of these medicines and these traditions. And it's And the traditions are living in such chronically poor conditions. I mean, I've spent extensive time in the Amazon basin and uh, in Colombia, in Peru, and individuals who, you know, need money, they need resources, they need to be able to have the cultural exchange also too for their own survival. My teachers in Colombia and Putomayo Basin have shared with me that there was an active reunion of the of the grandparents of the of the Yahe cultures. Um, and the Yahe is the um, ayahuasca from Colombia, uh, their their form of uh, of that technology and that sacrament. And that they made an active decision to start allowing the Yahe to leave Colombia for being able to support um, the elevation of human consciousness, but also because they need that connection. They need eyes on them for what's going on on really the most important, um, re- global, globally important resource base on the planet. And so for me, I think that, and so kind of back to your initial question, Scott, and I'm so glad that Webdelics is able to you know, have these conversations and just so grateful the thing that works with these these technologies is that it's very common to have an ex- a psychedelic experience and you learn i mean one night of ayahuasca can take an entire lifetime to unpack there's so much information in there and awareness and really i think neurological change that's happening there and we don't really know fully what's going on there again in these sort of different multidimensional contexts but that these are things that can start, oh, well, oh, well, now I'm a shaman and the medicine told me I need to serve medicine. And these are common constructs that, that happen to people. And it's not to say that those are wrong, but it's to say that uh, always from my perspective, as much as possible to honor um, uh, traditional cultures that are carrying these tools and the, and the fundamental sacrifice that they've gone through, through colonialism and Spanish, you know, all of it, that uh, there's a big distinguishment there. And at the same time, like an individual spiritual practice, practical practice in life, and what I've shared with you too about which we're going to talk about, about thinking about our neurotype in these different ways and sort of what I consider a shamanic neurotype that can express itself, that I think it's better that we we kind of keep things separate a little bit more. 
Great stuff. I love it. Now, let's talk a little bit more about this this Hollywood stereotype. I don't know why I'm so obsessed with this Hollywood stereotype. Maybe because I love... No, and... Oh, go ahead. Scott, and this is... Wait, to just share with you quickly, the Hollywood stereotype is important because when Christianity became really the dominant world religion, you know, hundreds of years ago, and Christianity is very interesting because it's infiltrated really a lot of the cultures that I work with. They've had missionaries there for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so um, there's been this interesting fusion that's happened in a lot of different ways. Oftentimes I've seen Jesus Christ on the mantle of different traditional curanderos um, altars, you know, like this is, this is something that's very, again, the cultural exchange uh, that's happening. However, the Western culture's perception of shamanism and animistic cultures has always been, generally speaking, that they're they're evil, they're dangerous, they're scary, they're othered, they're and and it's also helped fuel the very ease the the, the very ease of being able to eliminate them. Because when we don't relate to people, it's much easier to destroy them. I love that you actually frame the last part of that comment that way, because it goes to exactly where I was going, which was, I love horror movies. I love being scared out of my mind. And where I would see these representations of shamanism were always within some sort of horrifying or scary context. It wasn't designed in the movies that I watched at least to portray a sympathetic exploration into the culture and traditions of another society. It was more like, okay, you're entering into a place that's weird and dangerous and bad magic may happen and you better watch yourself and you'll be lucky if you come out alive. And by the way, everyone dresses funky. And so (laughs) what you're talking about then with regards to our Western religious cultures coming in and then dominating during the takeover of these earlier societies by imperialist powers. Yes, some fusion has occurred in the religious traditions, but this othering that you're talking about is what permeates at least the cultural impression that I had of shamanism that I'm thinking about these sorts of things from. Why do you think this pathologizing of shamanistic traditions came about? Was it literally just to stamp it out so that religion and resistance to the conquering cultures would be gone? Or is there more to it than that? I personally think that if we were to go back to the origins of it, um, I mean, if you look at the the history of humankind, that the aspect of colonialism, it's, it's pervasive across the planet. Indigenous cultures are not outside of that either. You know, and so I think that there's like this concept that, you know, I see kind of permeating between even individuals who are kind of like taking up shamanism or this type of thing as it's like, oh, that's it's like this exotic tradition and like it's got all the answers. And uh, no, I mean, there's <laughs> I think that there's a lot of benefit and a lot of challenge in sort of the more Western mindset of things, as well as a, a traditional shamanic mindset. And it's a matter of how we can best sort of understand both of these languages, so to speak. And to be able to to be versed in them, especially as as more integrations happening, I do tend to think though that it's a hundred percent easier to dismantle a culture for their resources when you other them, and that's fundamentally what's happening in the Amazon right now. It's been happening there forever since Spaniards came, and it's we're at this peak issue though right now with peak climate and peak population, and the infringement of the Amazon is in a critical state. So indigenous people there are on the front lines 
And I think that part of when we're talking about this sort of radical, you know, this psychedelic renaissance that's happening is for me, it's like, how many resources can we get to those people to really help preserve those forests that are the center of so many different plant technologies Mm -hmm. and also the center of how we uh, can live here on the planet Earth fundamentally. So. Okay, we're going to have to have a whole other podcast episode about that, and that will be fascinating. <laughs> Thank you for raising that. Behind what you said a little earlier in that series of comments, though, is something else which is not really, in my experience, and speaking for myself, taking seriously the framing of the world that I live in. It's interesting. When I told some friends of mine that I would be hosting a podcast about psychedelics. Several friends said, I'm not into that sort of stuff. I'm only into remedies that are natural. (laughs) Right. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. I was unaware that mushrooms were some unnatural technology. I said that in jest, but then several of the people that I was talking to were like, oh, yeah, you're right. I was just framing them that way because of the political narrative that we've had around various different types of substances some of which are drugs and bad, others of which are of a completely different nature. Now, what you're talking about is even framing how we view the uh, the spiritual or these other multidimensional practices of different cultures in a way that we may not even understand as othering, but we may actually benefit from um, integrating into our own experience, especially when you consider the fact that the motives for some of this othering might not have necessarily been in the best interests of anyone alive today, conquering, for instance, another people. And so this goes as to then the next question that I have for you, which is, you know, there is, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, a long history at this point of monotheistic Abrahamic religious traditions in both the global north and the global south, particularly in the Western Hemisphere. Yeah. And I think about how you're describing shamanistic traditions or the shamanistic experience. I can't help but think about some of the experiences that I even grew up in in the global north in a religious community that might be seen as shamanistic. So for instance, a lot of the fundamentalist churches that were in the community that I grew up in would have people, including sometimes in the one I grew up in, would have people standing up. They would have these experiences that appeared to outsiders to be out of body. They would speak in tongues. You would also have other people where they were what charismatic Christians speaking in tongues and literally rolling around in the floor and having a whole other set of experiences that are beyond what mainline Catholicism or Protestantism might describe as authorized spiritual interfaces with the divine that are through, like you mentioned, these intermediaries like priests or ministers. Yet they're treated differently. We don't say, oh, someone is having a shamanistic experience in the Pentecostal church down the street. We don't other them the same way. Why is there that difference What does that mean for how we're perceiving shamanism today, now? At least, let's talk about Amazonian-based curanderismo. There's been this sort of fundamental polarity in how Christianity uh, looks at cultures that are using what could be described more commonly as witchcraft, or more commonly in these ways that are, again, it's like setting these different energetics in nature and using them, and using them in different ways. 
something that I think is is kind of funny is that when we look at perhaps in, again in the context of what you're sharing about like the charismatic Christianity, but I mean. I'm sure you know, and many of the listeners know as well as I do, a lot of the stories around just how different um, these mega churches, the money involved, manipulation involved, child abuse involved um, for lots of decades that kind of regardless of whatever the faith is, that when there's kind of unchecked aspects of power dynamics that are that are displaying themselves in any in any society, which yeah. happens all the time. That, uh, that things can get weird. And so when there's also codified sort of practices around that, however, kind of back to your point, yeah, I mean, uh, brujeria and, and what we could call like witchcraft and, and kind of understanding energies and using energies in these different ways for on this side of things, good, if we wanted to say that, on the side of things, not so good and everything in the middle, this is part of ayahuasca shamanism. And it really is. And it's not to say that we need to approach it from a fear-based perspective. Uh, when we drink ayahuasca, oftentimes there are lots of beings going hanging out in there. We can have incredibly powerful experiences, confusing experiences. And this is again where for me, especially as someone who's born and raised in the global north, when I'm having those experiences, I integrate a, a shamanic framework and worldview through the framework of studying with my teachers and also a framework of neuroscience and understanding how trauma works and understanding how my neurotype works and understanding how, you know, like creating this balance. I think that from what you're sharing, it's again, Christianity is the dominant norm in the global North. It's pervasive in our political structure. It's pervasive in how we've um, created. I mean, it's, that is the dominant structure in the United States. And so in the framework and the othering of anything, it's even under the umbrella of Christianity. And for me, that that totally kind of fits the bill of being in these ecstatic states of using different sort of transpersonal states that people are engaging into to have transpersonal or spiritual experiences in this context. That to me fits the bill. But I think if you'd ask those people that, and maybe, you know, ask you like you're Christians, you know, like you, or you were Christian when you were in that community, very blurry. <laughs> it would. And it's actually really interesting because I'm imagining as you're talking, what would happen if I walked to one of those churches and, and asked one of those old ladies, some of which I knew, are you a shaman? Right. It would be a fascinating discussion. I wonder if they would sit and pause and think maybe I am, or maybe it would lead to more discussion, or if it might be a reactive, no, this is our really, or it might be a mix of, of what, depending on who. But then this all is sort of taking me to a, a word that you said earlier, and I might be misstating the word. It was actually a couple of words, so have patience with me if I get it wrong. But you basically said something like the shamanic neurotype, or the uh, basically someone that has a, uh, as I understood what you're saying, a sort of um, uh, predisposition or a personality type that lends to shamanistic experiences or shamanistic connection. Explain a little bit more about what you meant there. Yeah, Scott, this is something that I'm really, um, and, and, and just opening up the, the, the space to have deeper conversations with neuroscientists, with cultural anthropologists, but uh, I'm beginning to outline a book through the lens of my own experience of considering shamanism as an actual neurotype and a neurological phenomenon that expresses itself cross-culturally around the planet. And I think kind of un underneath everything that we're talking about is this concept of cultural relativism, that depending on what culture you're in and whatever's showing up there, that that culture is going to 
uh, codify, is going to give perspective on things in reference to that culture, right? And so in the aspect of, of when, we, when we're considering shamanism as a phenomenon that expresses itself around the world, and this is something for me through the lens of my own experience, and just to share briefly with the listeners, I had a, uh, a miraculous um, healing event that happened. I broke my neck when I was 15 years old. Um, I dreamt about the injury two weeks before it happened Whoa. and was completely, yeah, I was, <laughs> and I still walked right into it. I, the day that it happened, I actually, really? yes, the day that it happened, I actually, um, I, I was a competitive wrestler in high school. I actually tried to give up my weight class that day. And, um, you know, my coaches still encouraged me to, to compete, but I broke my neck on the mat. I almost completely severed my spine. Oh my gosh. Yes, I had an out-of-body experience that was the really the exact same um, exact same vision that I had from the stream before. And uh, when my injury happened, I had less than a two percent chance of ever moving again. What? Yes, and uh, I was fourteen years old. I turned fifteen in the hospital a few weeks later. Uh, I was on a ventilator, had a halo, and uh, without going too too much deeper into the story, basically what happened through through this process, neurologically, psycho spiritually. I had a shift. I had a shift that happened that was in part of what allowed me to be able to heal and recover from that injury that allowed me to start connecting to, let's say, these transpersonal states of consciousness that I don't have to take anything to access. And uh, it helped me in part heal uh, complete paralysis and um, walk out of the hospital four months after I broke my neck. And through that process in the coming year's time, what happened was that neurologically, things were different for me. And Marseille Lotti, who, um, you know, if, if you, for those of you who are interested, he's got this uh, amazing, but I'm looking at it on my, on my desk here, but shamanism and archaic techniques of ecstasy. And Marseille Lotti was really this historian. He did no cultural field work, but was an amazing historian that wrote a book that was the, basically the historical composition of shamanism found around the world that came out initially in the, in the fifties. And Marseille Lotti speaks about how there's two different types of people who become shamans traditionally. And this book goes into shamanism and how it's expressed all around the world. And one individual is an individual who is born into it. Like you're next in line, like you're born into a culture, you're next in line. You start training, generally speaking, from a young age. By the time you're an adult and or a grandparent that you assume the role and um, and then you're that role in the, in the culture. And then there's individuals who, and again, um, you know, I, I, I've shared in, in other podcasts that I don't, you know, and back to our previous question. I would never call myself a shaman, but I, I relate to sh the shamanic neurotype in that um, I have very easy accessibility to um, the energetics of nature, to other individuals, to what we could perceive as past life information, to uh, I have a lot of psychic phenomenon that's, ha that's helped me in life and also um, been challenging for me in life. And for me, again, it's, it's, it's thinking about this in a way that uh, is keeping it from this understanding of of how I've recovered from my injury. And so again, so Marseille Lotti has this context of born into, and then individuals like me where they, they have an, either a physical and or near death experience. And then they have a really fucking difficult, challenging time for however long afterwards as they're integrating and healing from that experience and also kind of figuring life out. And then they generally meet their teachers and actually get put to a cultural context and work. And for me, that very specifically um, outlies my what happened to me, you know, from the result of my injury, 
I had very, very challenging years after my injury, um, trying to uh, understand my neurological phenomenon. I was still living in Philadelphia. Fortunately, I have very supportive parents and family and like, thank God for them really, because they understood. And honestly, when I was a child, when I was a teenager after my injury, I was really thought I was losing my mind, you know, and I remember speaking with my mom and my mom said to me then, you know, some cultures call this shamanism and it's valued in their culture. And so, and I was like, what do you mean? They're valued? This is, I'm crazy. Like nobody else, like I live in Philadelphia. Like, how can I even share what's going on with me? Because people will think I'm crazy. And so, and it was a lot of just hiding and, and trying, and trying to be normal and trying to blend in and trying to, and fortunately I have executive function. I was able to go to school. I'm able to work, you know, et cetera. I was able to get out into the world. A lot of individuals don't necessarily have that ability that when different types of neurological, psychological phenomenon is happening. This kind of comes in the difference between when we're talking about neurotyping and neurological phenomenon versus pathologizing and saying that what is going on for you is wrong, is bad. We need to cure it. It needs to stop it. it and just even the shame and the guilt that's associated with that causes a lot of complications for people. And I work as a coach and as a facilitator with many individuals that I myself and or they would consider neurodivergent. And so when so many different neurodivergent people are coming to work with these tools for quote unquote healing, that in and of itself is a context that I think we have to really explore and understand better. Really interesting stuff. And again, since we're on generally throughout this episode, the theme of othering whether it's due to cultural conditioning or just thoughtlessness and or reframing, thinking then about the story that you just shared about your own stepping into your shamanic neurotype uh, really has me also assessing the snap judgments I've been guilty of making in my own life. Talking to you, hearing your story, it's quite obvious. You know, you're not crazy. But if I had heard about someone like this, simply because of my ignorance of this uh, whole phenomenon of human behavior, I might have easily just snapped my finger and said, well, so-and-so is just loopy. But you're right. If something has been accepted in culture. <laughs> For the entire majority of human history and throughout cultures on different continents, what really makes something loopy or not? Maybe the fact that we're separating ourselves or othering that way is what's loopy. It certainly appears to be, from everything I've heard from you and others, to not be the norm from a historical and larger global perspective. So who are who are any of us to describe something as loopy, including engagement in uh, in a shamanistic life or a shamanistic experience. I was just going to speak to the fact of like for me how I how I've used entheogens and psychedelics is to explore and to understand my own psychological phenomenon and I think that a lot of people listening to this might might relate to that. Mm-hmm. As a result though, I work with these things in a delicate way um as I get older. It's something for me that I think that when we're really unpacking what we're trying to heal, like this concept of healing, that we can kind of get into this like competitive healing culture, um, uh, uh, you know, and this is what I think is so amazing about the neurodiversity movement is that I think that when we can start to frame our own, everybody has their own individual reality, neurological reality, framework of their existence, how they're perceiving the world, 
their own traumas, their own epigenetics. There's so much that makes up any one of us. And this is for me, like this neurological phenomenon that I'm sharing with you. I really try to keep it in this balance of, you know, I think that this is a a gift that I have and it supports a lot of different people. And also I keep it in perspective that, you know, and I'm not trying to run a cult. I'm not trying to, you know, like, it's right. like, it's, Thankfully. It's like <laughs> right. I mean, it's like, and, and honestly, like I, and for me, I very much study these things too, of, of how we can be like, for me, I try to use it in a way of understanding kind of the power dynamics that are expressing themselves in, in any different structure. And that's, these are delicate things. But like, I think that the more that we can understand our own neurological phenomenon and be able to share it with others. And the challenges of such and the benefits of such is when we can actually find more communicative strategies to support each other and also to be able to find support in community. And I think that a lot of folks that are really struggling with what we could label as bipolar disorder, schizoaffective disorders. I mean, what I just shared with you, if I talk to enough doctors, they might consider that as a schizoaffective disorder, right? Again, the framework of things is important. Of course, Again, the way that we perceive things in the global north oftentimes come th- comes through a capitalist lens. Are you able to keep yourself employed? Are you able to buy a house? How much money do you have in your bank? What kind of job do you have? And individuals that are neurodivergent sometimes have challenges with that because capitalism's crazy and being able to to stay in those systems is very challenging. So, I think for me as a facilitator and as a coach with these with these very powerful tools, I really try to teach people about self-regulation and co-regulation and creating supportive structures for reframing what's going on, doing polyvagal work, being able to self-soothe their nervous system. Psychedelics are amazing, powerful tools, and they really need to be in combination with how we can support our nervous systems all of the time. And for us neurodivergent people, it can be challenging. So we have to kind of turn up the dial on that. Mm -hmm. One final question. As someone who is listening to or watching these episodes, psychedelic journeys or experiences with plant medicines may be something that someone who is curious is beginning to consider more seriously. Now, many people will not. And as practically all of the guests have said, it's an individual decision. There are risks associated with it, all of which need to be considered. And what and who and where one goes, all that sort of stuff needs to be done with intention and not just flippantly, certainly not with my brother from another mother, Shane, who lives three blocks away and has a dirty basement that he does ceremonies in, right? Don't, just don't do that, please. If you're listening or watching, just don't. (laughs) But one thing then after all of this, if someone says to me, I know a shaman, do you have any thoughts about how I, as someone who's curious, might want to respond? Or are there questions that I should ask? Or are there things that I should explore? Yes, I think that there's a lot of benefits as well as challenges with working with, again, okay, so I don't know about like Shane the shaman who might be living a few blocks from you, right? <laughs> if, Shane, if Shane's calling himself a shaman, again, that's don't the world we him. live in right now. <laughs> right, okay, don't go to Shane, y'all. He's shady. <laughs> don't go to Shane. So whenever we're working with these tools, I really encourage everyone listening that as best as possible to try to keep that balanced perspective I'm speaking of, right? Like, you know, uh, and so when we're working with traditional people, we're working in their cultural context, we're working in their framework, we're working in their cosmovision. 
that has a lot of beauty and benefit. And when we integrate that, when we have to come home, we go back to New York City, where you're at, we got to go back to Philly. When I first started drinking medicine and, you know, landed back in Philadelphia, it was incredibly challenging because again, it's like, and this was a time when nobody, I mean, now everyone knows what ayahuasca is, relatively speaking. This was like, nobody knew what, what the hell ayahuasca was then. <laughs> um, but, but I think that this is something as best as possible to really try to give yourself a perspective and framework for how you can keep balance with, with these tools from a Western perspective, safety, integration, thinking about how, what's going on neurologically, working, having a framework of how trauma is working. And also, um, yeah, as much as possible, giving space to, to study with traditional people in the given particular entheogen that you're working with, if that's what you're doing. I think it's incredibly important to try to do that. It's not always accessible for people. So I think that if people are going to, you know, another country to work with a traditional curandero, for example, or, you know, working with Iboga, for example, and going to work with the Buiti, for example, it's really trying to unpack all of those questions, but in those two different frameworks. For people like me, for example, that oftentimes are supporting uh, traditional people in their work. So I think that um, that would be my best advice to people, because I think that just signing up for, oh, okay, like I'm going to go and like study, I'm going to go like live with the Siona in Putamayo in, Putamayo in Colombia and just observe. That's incredibly challenging and inaccessible for most people. Most people don't want to live like that. So like, it's a matter of, of keeping those perspectives together and how can we integrate those perspectives for optimal support safety for having this like you know multi-dimensional language of nature that we can be forever improving and and coming at it like that if there is one final thing that you would like to, uh, someone who is listening or watching to take away from all that you've shared today colette what would that one thing be to really go slow you know for those of y'all who are interested in these tools I think that these uh, these tools work in really amazing and powerful ways, but to really just go slow and to, you know, people talk about integration. Integration is amazing, but I think about 80% preparation. Wow. And so that's how I work with people at this point who are coming to these tools for the first time is giving them that basis of self-regulation. How are they co-regulating? How are they able to frame their reality? Are they supported in life? Are they safe in life? Because these tools don't solve all your problems <laughs> and they're amazing and beautiful, but they open up a lot of information. And so as best as possible, go slow and 80% preparation. I love that takeaway. And I actually think you're the first person on the podcast so far who has explicitly said that. And it's an important thing to hear, at least for me. But I can't imagine I'm alone because it's very easy to get excited about this stuff and the possibilities that it's unlocking. Going slow. That's something I get challenged with sometimes. <laughs> Me too, <It's> scary. Scott. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear that. So, Colette, thank you so much for your time. It's been amazing having you on the show. How can people find out more about you? Y'all can come and visit me at condormedicine.com. That is my website. I'm at Condor Medicine on Instagram. And uh, yeah, you guys can connect with me there. And of course, um, you know, through the Webdelix platform, it's been great to be here on Webdelix. So thank you all so much. Appreciate you, Scott. And I think a lot of people may just have to connect with you on those places. Well, I would love that. That's what you get for being on the Webdelix podcast. <laughs> thank you so much.
Thank you. Now, for those of you who enjoyed today's episode, we have a lot more on the way. We have discussions about integration, which Colette just mentioned a few minutes ago, and how important that is and how it can process, uh, help you process, grow, and fundamentally transform after psychedelic journeys. We're going to have conversations about everything from psychedelics and the aging process to psychedelics and yoga, and a lot more. It's just really exciting, and I, I can barely contain myself sometimes. So, I ask that everyone make sure that you follow us on your favorite podcast platform or on YouTube. And if you like what we're doing, tell the friends that you care about and other people in your network about us so that the word can get passed on. Also, be sure to leave us a positive review on your favorite audio platform, as well as some positive remarks on YouTube. And if you are interested for more trusted, unbiased, and accurate information about psychedelics and plant medicine, you can begin to find out more by following us on our social media platforms like Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn, or Facebook. But you can also go directly to our website, webdelics.com. That's W-E-B-D-E-L-I-C-S.com. Sign up for our blog, read the excellent material we have, and above all else, Come back next time for another episode of the Webdelix Podcast. The WebDelix podcast exists to educate, illuminate, and inform. It does not provide medical advice or recommendations as to any course of treatment, mental health or otherwise. You should always consult with a physician or other licensed healthcare professional, mental health or otherwise, before pursuing any personal growth program or course of treatment.